Chapter 5. Who owns your inheritance? A few years ago, I needed to put in a lawn around my house. The fellow down at the local nursery said there were two ways. I could sod or seed. Which is the fastest? I asked. Without any hesitation, he said, sod. Which is the cheapest? I followed. Seed, he replied. I preferred the sod method, but my pocketbook told me I would have to grow along by the slow, hard way, by seed. If I had had the money, I could have started with a better foundation for my lawn and gotten the job done faster. That would have meant I could have gone on to the rest of the landscaping sooner. This experience illustrates the significance of inheritance. When a man acquires an inheritance from the previous generation, provided he is not a bum, he has a foundation on which to build. It will not completely determine his success, but it can make him more successful. It's the difference between trying to build a lawn from scratch or being able to build on the sod of a previous generation. The West has been established on this rich principle. Perhaps you've heard the saying, don't try to reinvent the wheel. This comes from the idea that we do not have to redo everything that has been accomplished over the last 6,000 years. That means there is progress. In our day, we can build on discoveries of the past to make new advances. We don't have to start from scratch. Whether you realise it or not, this all goes back to a very important principle of inheritance and what we find true on the larger scale is valid on the smaller, the family. The principle of inheritance, as a matter of fact, finds its origin in the family. Think what it would be like if families could build up an inheritance and send their children off into the future with the foundation of the past. It would mean that they would have a better start. Like the third man in the relay race, he has a better chance of helping his team to victory if the second man passes the baton to him ahead of the other team's second man. Somehow, we all sort of intuit that a better start is more likely to mean a better finish. That is, all of us accept the federal government. The federal government has decided that, in order to keep the race fair, if one runner gets too far ahead of the competition, he will be required by law to slow down before he passes the baton. What do I mean? For almost 80 years, a new philosophy about inheritance has entered our society. It all began around the turn of the century. Income tax. Quote, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on income from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. End quote. The 16th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. The 16th Amendment altered completely this country's view of inheritance and the family. It is not like the other court cases I've presented in this book, but it is a definite legal action that affected family life in America. How? There's no better way to establish my point than to allow a statement made by President William Howard Taft, made in June 1909, in a signed message to the Senate and House of Representatives. His statement recommended the imposition of a corporation excise tax, but his comments 
speak to proposed income tax legislation already in existence at that early date. His comments also form the rationale for the later actual income tax amendment of 1913. The federal government was running a budget deficit. He proposed to cover the deficit by raising taxes, not by cutting expenditures. So what else is new? He said, quote, It is the constitutional duty of the President from time to time to recommend to the consideration of Congress such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. It is now proposed to make up the deficit by the imposition of a general income tax in form and substance of almost exactly the same character as that which, in the case of Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust Company, was held by the Supreme Court to be a direct tax and therefore not within the power of the federal government to impose unless apportioned among the several states according to population. Second, the decision in the Pollock case left power in the national government to levy an excise tax which accomplishes the same purpose as a corporation income tax and is free from certain objections urged to the proposed income tax measure. This is an excise tax upon the privilege of doing business as an artificial entity and of freedom from a general partnership liability enjoyed by those who own the stock. The decision of the Supreme Court in the case of Spreckles Sugar seems clearly to establish the principle that such a tax as this is an excise tax upon privilege and not a direct tax on property and is within the federal power without apportionment according to population. The tax on net income is preferable to one proportionate to a percentage of the gross receipts because it is a tax upon success and not failure. Another merit of this tax is the federal supervision which must be exercised in order to make the law effective over the annual accounts and business transactions of all corporations. While the faculty of assuming a corporate form has been the most utmost utility in the business world, it is also true that substantially all of the abuses and all of the evils which have aroused the public to the necessity of reform were made possible by the use of this very faculty. If now, by a perfectly legitimate and effective system of taxation, we are incidentally able to possess the government and the stockholders and the public of the knowledge of the real business transactions and the gains and the profits of every corporation in the country, we have made a long step toward that supervisory control of corporations which may prevent a further abuse of power. End quote. In case you got lost, let me summarise the significant elements in Taft's comments. 1. Up to that time, taxation was assessed according to the population and had to go through the states. In other words, the federal government could not tax apart from them. 2. Taft is really providing the rationale for a graduated income tax, one that taxes on success. The more you make, the more you pay, as a percentage of your income. Catch the point? Before 1913, everyone would have paid the same amount, for example, an excise tax or sales tax on a particular product. But the income tax is specifically directed at the successful. Some have said this was the beginning of the transferable society, that is, a society where money is transferred from one segment to another. It's the Robin Hood game. Take from the rich and give to the poor. 
minus 20% for handling. Except there essentially were no government welfare programs in 1913 because the poor were aided through private agencies and the church. The Robin Hood of government took from the rich in the name of the poor and gave to itself. 3. Taft clearly understood that such taxation would require more government in the lives of the populace, what he calls federal supervision. Indeed, the Internal Revenue Service is an autonomous government agency that has more power than any other government organisation. Before the IRS, the citizen is legally guilty until proven innocent. Unlike the protection he receives under common law, innocent until proven guilty. Taft's rationale won the day. Within a few years, the 16th Amendment was passed and life changed for the family, creating a chain reaction of events. The federal government went from a $1 billion national debt in 1913 to a $17 billion national debt in 1918. So much for balancing the budget by raising taxes. During the period of the 1930s, instead of freeing up the common man, the government took the opportunity to seize more personal freedoms in the United States and throughout the world. The growth of central government was a universal phenomenon in the West. Why? Because the West was steadily abandoning the last traces of Christianity. A new god was being worshipped. The state. Steadily, more and more personal freedom has been taken from the people. Now, virtually everyone in our society looks to the federal government the way our forefathers looked to their parents. Here is how it changed the family. The income tax is a tax on success. It means that parents could no longer hand down as much to their children. Their inheritance is being eaten into. The government, no longer the family, has become the great benefactor. But the government, unlike the family, isn't productive. It doesn't produce anything, except, rarely these days, social order. It survives by extracting wealth from others, not by creating it. At best, it is a referee. At worst, a parasite. So, who owns inheritance? According to the 16th Amendment of the Constitution, the government has a big part of it. In principle, it has all of it. It just depends what the politicians can collect from the taxpayers. The limit is simple. All the traffic will bear. The more you have, the larger the percentage the government is entitled to. Is this biblical? Do they own your inheritance? Or anybody's for that matter? As we have seen before, God owns it, but delegates it through the family. But the fifth commandment has been rewritten. Quote, Honour the state, that thy days may be long upon the land, that the land use planning bureaucracies temporarily assign to thee. End quote. The inheritance problem in our nation is this. To the extent that America has turned from the God of heaven and earth, who owns the inheritance, to the same degree we find that Americans have lost their legacy. See what has happened. America has turned from the Lord and has begun to lose its blessing. Income tax was a curse sent by God to chasten a rebellious nation. As an aside, there is solid historical evidence that, technically speaking, the 16th Amendment was never legally ratified. The government simply declared that it had been ratified, 
despite irregular voting procedures at the state level that nullified its passage. 36 states were required for its adoption. Kentucky's legislature, for example, did not adopt the 16th, but its mistakenly illegal certification was counted. When the votes are accurately counted, it turns out that only 32 states ratified the 16th Amendment, but voters were satisfied with the announced ratification, then as now, and nobody bothered to check its legality until the mid-1980s. Voters have turned from the God who grants true freedom. The heart of the gospel is freedom. Christ said, quote, You shall know the truth, Christ, and the truth shall set you free. End quote. John chapter 8, verse 32. Without the gospel, people become slaves. What do you think people were before missionaries brought the message of Christ to the West? Just a horde of wandering barbarians. God delivered the West from this oppression, and America was born out of the legacy of the freedom of the gospel. Today, however, Americans want to be slaves because they have turned from Christ. Until they turn back to him and repent, they will remain slaves. Slaves like taxes, just so long as they believe, mistakenly, that the rich are paying a higher share than they are. If they can get even with the rich by enslaving everyone, they will vote for slavery every time. This is the sin of envy. Destruction for the sake of levelling the rich. So, how do we repent? How do we recapture our inheritance? We come to the fifth principle of the covenant of the family, continuity or inheritance. We must consider the word of God to see what God requires. Only by understanding and doing exactly what he tells us can we regain our inheritance and pass it down to our children. Let's examine several elements of the principle of inheritance. The principle of inheritance An extremely wealthy man once came to me and wanted to know which of his children should receive his inheritance. He had one son who was very wealthy, successful, but decadent. His other son was young, energetic, poor, but committed to Christ. One of his daughters had rebelled early, but come back to the family. Another daughter had been faithful, but recently turned away from the Lord. Which ones do you think should have received the inheritance? Do you believe they should all have received equal amounts? Should some have been disinherited? Should some have received more than others? I told this concerned father to keep three biblical points about inheritance in mind. Tangible and intangible. Inheritance is tangible and intangible. Scripture places the greater emphasis on the intangible while not excluding concrete wealth. Intangible wealth has to do with character and ethics. You know the old saying, quote, Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he won't need any more gifts. End quote. It's this idea. If parents just give their children material things but fail to teach them the basic ethical principles of life, the children will squander their wealth. That's exactly what's happening in our society. Did you know that the Bible has an entire book on the ethical principles that should be handed down to the next generation? It's called the Book of Proverbs. Most of these were written by Solomon himself, the richest man in the world in his day. 
The thrust of the Proverbs is summed up by an event in Solomon's life, just after he became king. It demonstrates both tangible and intangible inheritance and where the priority should be placed. Quote, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honour, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. End quote. First Kings chapter 3 verses 5 to 13 If God gave you one wish, what would you ask for? Solomon was initially a faithful man, his priorities were right, at least until he started marrying foreign wives by the hundreds. He wished for freedom. Perhaps this is the reason that God could grant him such a wish. God usually does not give people what they want until their priorities are right. What Solomon's life demonstrates is that it is not possible to remain wise if you violate a major commandment of God year after year. Solomon remains smart he just lost his wisdom for a lengthy period. Wisdom is a product of obedience to God's laws. Disobeying the laws is the same as becoming unwise. Nevertheless, Solomon's inheritance was both tangible and intangible. He grew rich, rich enough to afford all those wives. The intangible initially meant more to him. He knew if he had wisdom, then he would have everything his problem appeared when the things he could afford turned out to be forbidden. Conditional The second point I made to the father who asked me about his children concerned the conditional character of inheritance. In the same passage above, God continued telling Solomon, quote, So, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. End quote. 1 Kings chapter 14. God granted Solomon wisdom and wealth on the basis of his faithfulness. But if Solomon turned from the Lord, then he would lose his inheritance. In fact, Solomon did fall away and his kingdom was divided. After Solomon, the book of Kings takes a sad turn of events. Of course, the message is that Solomon is like the first Adam 
who allowed women to mislead him. His fall eventually culminated in the coming of Christ, the faithful son who never disobeyed his father. Yet, in the first Kings 3 statement that the Lord made to Solomon, we should see that inheritance should not be given indiscriminately. All children should not necessarily receive the same amounts. Nor should all children receive anything at all. Only the faithful should receive an inheritance. If all the children are faithful, then all should receive equal proportion. But the point is that faithfulness determines who receives the inheritance. Living Trust Finally, I told the father that inheritance should be a living trust. Even in our day, this is called an intervivos trust. What is it? A living trust is where the inheritance passes to the heirs before the death of the testator. The basis for such a concept goes all the way back to the scripture. The patriarchs, for example, bequeathed their inheritance to the heirs before their death. Quote, now, it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours and will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was a little distance to go to Ephra, and I buried her there on the way to Ephra, that is, Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. End quote. Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 to 9. Did you follow what was happening? Jacob, Israel, was about to die. Before he died, however, he left his inheritance to his heirs, making his legacy a living trust. The advantages of a living trust are threefold. One, the heirs usually need the inheritance more when they're young, when they don't have the start in life. Two, the living trust approach allows the parents to give the estate gradually to the heirs. If a large estate is involved, the heirs can become used to the inheritance so that they don't receive everything at once. They can grow into the wealth. Three, the parents can see how the heirs respond to the inheritance while they are alive. If a progressive inheritance approach is applied, the parents can get a pretty good idea which children will be responsible. The living trust is biblical and practical. Just like the other aspects of the principle of inheritance, it formed a guideline for the father who wanted to know which children should receive his estate. Conclusion The question I've answered is, who owns your inheritance? An inheritance is important because it gives the next generation 
a foundation to build on. In this chapter, I have done two things. One, I've used the 16th Amendment to introduce the whole concept of inheritance. Since the income tax legislation of 1913, which was never legally ratified, parents have been able to give less and less to their heirs. The income tax is a tax on success. Those who are most blessed are most penalised. The government has been in a battle with the family, trying to become the parent of the family. Is this right? No. As we've seen time and time again, the state is not supposed to be a parent. It should not threaten the existence of the family, nor take what doesn't belong to it. 2. God owns the inheritance of the family, and he entrusts it to them on the basis of three principles. A. Tangible and intangible legacies. Inheritance is in both forms. The Bible places the greater priority on the intangible character. We saw in the case of Solomon, however, that great tangible wealth comes when man, quote, seeks first the kingdom of God, unquote, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. B. Conditional legacies. God never gives anything without requiring faithfulness. Neither should the parents. When they give an inheritance to unfaithful children, grace is cheapened. They teach that God rewards the wicked. C. Living trusts. Biblical inheritance is given when the testator lives. These aspects of the principles of inheritance enable parents to leave something for the future. If there is no tangible inheritance for the person, then there is less hope. It is true that the state cannot directly tax intangible wealth, but it tries. The public school system is the major instrument of the state in taxing intangible, moral wealth. Profit-seeking, humanist-dominated television is its ally in this effort. A very important person in the future is the child. He represents the future. But in our day and time, the future is threatened because of the brutal murder of children before they are born. Abortion. In the next chapter, we want to consider who owns life, the Supreme Court, the mother, who. It's certain that everything I've said about inheritance doesn't matter if a person kills all his children before they become heirs. In a way, this is what's happening in our society. No inheritance, no heirs. Let's turn to the next chapter to learn how to save our heirs.